Welcome to episode eight, if you will, of the Virtual Cafe. This started at the beginning of this pandemic. I just thought it'd be nice for people to get out of their pajamas or at least from the waist up <laughs> and have a chance to say hello to people. That has morphed into a wonderful situation where we I have a guest speaker and you all have a chance to hear from somebody who is remarkable. And what's wonderful is a number of our speakers continue to join us here as guests today. And so my guest today is Dave McGilvery. And Dave and I met, gosh, a while back when I had, was doing workshops, helping people figure out how to write a book. Dave had heard about this and asked, could he come to my workshop? And it was just a treat to have him and some other folks there. And we talked about just the nuances of writing a book. And then every so often I will bump into Dave. I am not a runner. I only run when I'm late for a plane is my rule, <laughs> is my rule. But I have been a champion and actually I can share with everybody at some point when my book was done, I got my, the copy of my book from McGraw Hill the day before the Boston Marathon. Mm -hmm. And my office at the time, for those of you who are from Boston, um, was at the corner of Exeter and Newbury Street. And so I took a picture of myself crossing the finish line the morning of the marathon. And then I sent an email newsletter out saying, it's a miracle Diane finishes the marathon. This was 2003, Dave. So I think this was when there wasn't the, t the staggered times yet, I don't mm -hmm. think. I just sent it out. Well, anybody who knew the marathon knew it hadn't even started yet. <laughs> so people were like, how could you finish a marathon? And I'm like, I finished a marathon because I wrote my book and I published it. So I just want to say that, you know, we all experience marathons in our own way. I think we are all going through one right now in a way that is maybe hard for all of us to navigate and process all of that. So Dave, I'd love for you to share first, how are you? What are you going through? I know for me, um, this is a very tough time. I had a full, you know, relatively full speaking calendar booked and now all of that has changed. So first of all, how are you and what's life like for you today? I'm actually doing fine. For the folks who don't know my background briefly, I grew up in Medford, Mass. And as the story goes, I always wanted to play second base for the Boston Red Sox or play for the Celtics. And unfortunately for me, I'm short in stature. You can't tell by the Zoom here, but I am. And I was always the last one picked and always the last one cut. So I learned a big lesson when I was a young boy, and that was the lesson about rejection and how difficult that is to overcome. Not to be denied, I started running because nobody can catch up from running. And I've been running ever since. I've run about 150,000 miles in my lifetime. And I wrote a book called The Last Pick, as Diane was saying. And um, people say, what's your book about? And I always say, my book's about the person reading it. Like every one of you on this call, you're in the book because you can identify with all those struggles and hurdles that everyone goes through in life. It's just a matter of how you process them, how you deal with them. And so for me, to be an athlete, I just chose a different path. And I chose running. So then in 1978, I ran across the United States from Method, Oregon to my hometown of Method, Mass, 3,452 miles in 80 consecutive days. I was the original Forrest Gump, to be quite honest with you. And I did it to raise money for charity for the Jimmy Fund of Boston. And I finished in Fenway Park in front of 32,000 people. And from that point on, I just decided I wanted to continue to challenge myself. So I ran up the East Coast of America from Winter Haven, Florida to Boston. And I did triathlons, the Ironman triathlon in Hawaii. 
where you swim two and a half miles, bike 112 miles, run a marathon all in one day. And I did that nine times. And when I was 12, I ran my age in miles. I ran 12 miles in 13, 13, 14, 14. I just turned 65. I ran 65 miles on my 65th birthday. People say to me all the time, what are you going to do when you turn 90? I said, well, I don't know. First of all, I want to be breathing. And then I'll wake up and then I'll decide what to do. But I really tell people what my motto in life is. And that is, it's my game. So it's my rules. So it's your life to live and your rules to follow. And that's how I've lived my life ever since. After I get done from running across America, I opened up an athletic footwear and clothing store in my hometown. Then I started putting on events to promote the store. And I realized I like putting on events more than shoes on people's feet. And off I went. And since then, 40 years later now, I've directed over 1,300 events from the Olympic Games to World Championships to National Championships and to the Boston Marathon for the last 33 years. It was interesting because when I first started my business, people said to me, you really think you can earn a living putting on road races? I said, ah, that's where you're wrong. What do you mean? I'm not just putting on road races. Well, what the heck are you doing? What I'm doing is I'm giving people an opportunity here. And they said, what do you mean? I said, the whole idea is to give them a chance to feel good about themselves, to raise the level of self-esteem and self-confidence of tens of thousands of people in America. And that's what I do. And that's what I have been doing. So that's been my business for the last 40 some odd years. And then all of a sudden, I always thought that this business was bulletproof. You know, during the recession in 2008, People were out there exercising, working out because they were more concerned about themselves at this point in time. Things were going great. Things were going great. And then all of a sudden, this pandemic comes along and my business just in two months got wiped out. I have 10 full-time employees. I have about 50 consultants all over the country. I was going to manage 35 events this year and every single one of them up till now in March, April, May, June, July, August, over the cliff, gone. Because the very nature of what I do flies right in the face of this pandemic. Like what I do is what they're telling all of us not to do. That is, get all these people together, thousands of people in a small space, line them all up, sweating on each other and breathing on each other, and then yell, go. Well, I can't do that anymore. So now what do I do? I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out myself. They postponed the Boston Marathon. It's been around for 124 years. Postponed it for the first time. We know it's 124 from April 20th to September 14th. So it's in four months. And will it happen? I don't know. Between us on the call, my guess is it's going to be tough to pull this thing off. Given everything going on in the world, medical Will we get volunteers? Can we get athletes in from all over the world? It just doesn't seem to make sense to me. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. So what have I been doing? (laughs) I've been trying to survive is what I've been doing. And the last thing is I've done all this running, you know, 157 marathons. I've actually run the Boston Marathon myself for the last 47 years in a row. I direct it during the day. Then I go back at night and run the whole thing myself and finish last. I'm the last finisher of the Boston Marathon for the last 32 years. And so I've done all these athletic things. And then only a couple of years ago, I could feel some difficulty in my chest. And long story short, I was diagnosed with severe coronary artery disease. I mean, that blew me away because I said, how can I have coronary artery disease with all this exercise and all that? And you know, I realized for the first time in 60 years that just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. So for the last 
year and a half, I just had open heart triple bypass surgery. So I've been recovering from that and dealing with the business and trying to keep everything content at home and all that kind of stuff. So, but at the same time, I'm blessed, right? Because I do have my health. I'm here. I have a good family, good situation and stuff. So, and I've raised probably two to $300 million for charity over the years because I believe that when you give, you will receive even more in return. So I'm just trying to keep the ship afloat. Um, I'm positive about the future and we'll see, we'll see what happens. I mean, David's just remarkable. I remember, I remember just several marathons and one was the weather was so awful. There was a possibility of canceling at the last minute and I forget exactly when that was. And then that was the day that was the Virginia Tech shooting. And for some reason, those two came together for me. And I remember thinking, you know, that you deserve some award for courage of making that decision when you were, when you've got people from flying all over the world. And then another time I was in Chicago and people weren't able to come in because of the volcanoes in Europe. Can you talk a little bit about the year of the bombing? Because I remember you were far away and your your children were at the finish line and you really weren't quite sure where people were. Yeah, well, like I said, I run it after most people are done. So it was getting near the end of the race. The majority of the people had finished. So I just checked with everyone, my team captains, all the different folks, the medical tent, everything. Everything seemed fine. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to head back out to the start do my run and I was standing on the starting line and all of a sudden my phone rang. Someone told me there were two explosions at the finish line. I was like, generators, explosion? And they said, no, bombs went off. I said, bombs went off. So the state police brought me back on the mass pipe, went 100 miles an hour. We got back in 20 minutes. But I was calling my wife because she was sitting in the bleachers with my children and I had just saw them before I left and I was worried about them and the cell service went down, so I couldn't get a hold of them. I was all worried about my own family. What about all these people at the finish line? I get back there, and I walk into the medical tent, and when I had gone in there previously, there was hardly anyone in there, and this time it was full, but not um, any runners. It's just all the people who were impacted by the bombing, and I left the tent, and I went to go find my children and my wife, and the police officer stops me. He goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going up to the finish line. He said, you can't go up there. I said, well, I'm the race director. Here's my ID. He said, well, it's not your race anymore. And it just hit me like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is actually happening. Um, so it was really tough, you know, for the rest of the day. I finally found my family. Or I didn't see them. I, I heard from them that they were okay. They were just sitting on a curb up their street because they got evacuated. And finally, I got home maybe a couple of days later. And my seven-year-old son, who saw everything at the finish line, he come up to me and he gave me a hug and he said, dad, I never want you to direct that race again. He associated my job with danger. I mean, putting on a road race, it's dangerous. Now it is. Right. And it really sort of hit me that there were a lot more people profoundly impacted by this than those who were physically hurt. Yeah. And maybe like three months later, he come up to me again and he said, cause everyone, you know, we started to recover and from everything and Boston strong and all that. And uh, he come up to me and gave me another hug. He says, remember I told you I never want you to direct that race again? I said, yeah, Luke, I remember. He goes, you know why? I said, why? He said, because I want to direct it. You know, so he had recovered enough to understand that we got to move on. We got to be strong. We have to persevere. And the next year we came back and we put on an epic event, obviously. You know, it was the greatest marathon in the history of marathons, you know. 
And what's interesting about what's going on here is I feel like the exact same thing is happening right now, that a tragedy has occurred, our race has been impacted, and we have to persevere, and we have to fight through this, and we have to get through it, and we have to take back Oilson Street and take back that finish line. Eventually, we're going to be there. And we all have to do that together, even though we're apart. So it's sort of the same thing in a different way all over again. I was in Michigan speaking at the University of Michigan Business School, and I had my back to the screen, and I didn't realize I'd left my Wi-Fi on, and it popped up, you know, the marathon bombing had happened. And I had referenced being from Boston, and people said, you know, Diane, you should check and be sure, you know, everybody who's important to you is okay. And over the next few days, you kind of go through this just processing of experiencing it far away and then landing in Boston. And I remember when I landed at the Logan airport, you know, we're not known for being a friendly part of the world. I'm from rural Indiana. So we say hi to everybody in that part of the world. And you don't quite say hi to strangers. And I remember landing at the airport and everybody was talking to each other. Mm. You know, you saw all these just warmth and friendly conversations. And then then the, the taxi was chatty, which you don't often have in a Boston taxi. This is before Uber. And it was just a really interesting experience to go through all that. Out my window, I live near the, where the Celtics and the Bruins play. I live right near North Station. And so marathon morning, I see the buses lining up out my window to pick up the runners and take them out to the start line. Just the logistics of you know running the marathon. What are some things that people who are now trying to get their lives back together and the logistics of getting into workspaces where you're gonna need distancing. And what would be some insights you would have? You're an expert at logistics. I mean, the day after the marathon, Boston looks like nothing had ever happened. I'm always just in awe of your team. A couple of things. One is I always think of myself as a caretaker. Like the race was here way before I was born and it'll be here a lot longer after I'm gone. I'm just kind of taking care of it for a little while, you know, during this period of time. I also consider myself more as a conductor than as a director of an, like an orchestra. Cause really my greatest skill set is surrounding myself with people who are smarter than me, are more experienced than me. So you put the team together and you delegate wisely and you just got to be sort of the conductor to make sure it all comes together harmoniously. And you gotta remember this thing is 124 years old. So there's a lot of people who've been involved since dinosaurs roamed the earth. And uh, they really know their role pretty well and whatnot. And at the same time, it's like running in a marathon. You can't just fake it. You know, you have to go through all the motions over and over and over and over again and try to improve upon it. And the tough part about Boston is that, you know, we're the holy grail in our industry. You go to any part of the world and you might say Harvard or you might say MIT or you might say UCLA or whatever you might say. And people may not recognize that. You say the Boston Marathon, they'll know what that is because we have athletes coming in from 140 countries from around the world. The bar is pretty high to sort of achieve and we continue to set the standard. This is the bucket list for everyone. So the point being is that, you know, pressure's on to produce the most flawless event that we we can. But again, it's just a matter of surrounding yourself with, with the right people. Now, however, we're faced with this conundrum of what would it even look like? And I'm struggling with that a little bit because if we do pull this off in September, what is this social distancing, physical distancing thing really going to be 
because I've got 30,000 people in this small town and the starting line's 39 feet wide. I mean, I can't put people every six feet. The lineup will be 34 miles long. It'll be halfway across the state of Massachusetts and it'll take a month and a half to start the event. So it's all a matter of what's the new normal with the bombing. The next year I went to law enforcement and public safety. I mean, now everyone's involved, right? The feds, FBI, everyone's involved in this thing now, right? We're a CA2 uh, rated event in terms of threat level. And so it's pretty high up there. And so I went to public safety and I said, well, I got one question for you. They said, what? I said, are we going to build the event around security? Or are you going to build security around our event? He goes, oh, no, we'll build security around the event. You continue to do what you normally do wrong. That never happened. We had to wait until security had their plan and build the event around it. That was like starting all over again. I fear that that's what we're up against now, that it's not going to be the same. You know, how can we bus 30,000 people from Boston out to Hopkinton and social distance at the same time. I can't put 50 people on a bus. I can only put maybe 15 so they can spread out. That means I, I need three times the amount of buses. I already used 750 buses. Where am I going to get 2,000 buses? They don't exist. So anyways, the point being, I think you get the message to medical team. We have 1,800 medical personnel working the event. Where are we going to get all of them? They're still in the hospitals, right? In the hospitals. How am I going to get hospital personnel? Volunteers, will they come? I'm not sure. You know, will the runners come? Is there still a fair factor? So even though we're hopeful and we're working towards trying to have an event, we also are realistic to know that as we get a little bit closer, maybe we're going to sense something that says maybe we have to change it up a bit and modify it somehow. Just amazing. So how are you with your health? I remember when I saw on Facebook that you were, you know, right behind me at Mass General. And I'm like, Dave McGillivray is having heart issues. How have you recovered and taken care of yourself? And, you know, what were some things that made that made you realize this was something pretty serious you needed to do? But when I was diagnosed in Mass General, it was funny because I could feel something as I was exercising, difficulty breathing. I thought, well, maybe I ate something wrong or get up the wrong side of the bed or whatever. I went to the hospital and I, they did every test known to man to me, echocardiogram, stress test, EKGs, everything, right? And they all said the same thing. No, there's nothing wrong with you. I said, what do you mean there's nothing wrong with me? I can't breathe when I'm running. I said, you got to give me the big boy test, right? Look under the hood. So they said, okay, fine. They did a CAT scan and an angiogram and the doctor walks in while I'm on the operating table and he says, there, 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 and there. I said, there, what? He says, you have severe coronary artery disease. I was like, how did that happen? And I turned to the doctor and I said, I have one question for you. He said, what? I says, is this reversible? He said, it depends. I said, it depends on what? He said, it depends on the person. I said, well, you're looking at him. I'm right here. And he said, you, with your discipline, I think you can have an impact in your own coronary artery disease. I said, all right, sign me up, man. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I changed everything. I changed my diet, nutrition, my sleep habits. I always thought sleep was overrated because <laughs> I wanted to get the most out of every day. Most of the people on this call are probably the same way, you know, hammer, hammer, hammer. Yeah, I'm only on this planet for so long. I want to accomplish as much as I can. I was driven and stressed. I just got through the bombing. That was 2013. That was a bad year. And all of a sudden, I changed everything in four months. I lowered my cholesterol level by over 100 points. I lost 27 pounds, which I didn't have to lose. And I reversed my own severe coronary artery disease by over 40%. And I said, okay, I'm on my way. And I was getting better and better and better. And then all of a sudden, I did this crazy thing called the World 
marathon challenge. And what that is, it's running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, so I flew to Antarctica, ran a marathon there, then ran a marathon in South Africa, and then flew to Perth, Australia, and then went to Dubai in Asia, and then flew to Lisbon, Portugal, down to South America, to Cartagena and Colombia, and finished with a marathon in Miami. Seven marathons, seven days, seven continents. Everything was fine. I felt okay. And then I got home, and I still felt okay, but I could feel a little bit difficulty again. And all of a sudden, I went back into the hospital, and they said, you have one artery that has 95% blockage. I'm like, what? It came back. I couldn't believe it came back. So I turned to that heart surgeon, and I said, well, in six months, there's this little jog-a-thon in April in Boston. I shuffled through it a few times, like 46 times. What do you think? He gave me the best possible answer. He didn't say, yeah, I think you can do it. Or no, I don't think you can do it. He said, I'd be extremely disappointed if you couldn't do it. And that gave me something that I, that I really needed. It's a four-letter word. I really needed this. And that was hope. It gave me hope that I could actually recover, get stronger, and maybe get through my 47th consecutive Boston Marathon at night. And I did. And I finished it. And I just said from that point forward that, you know, I'm going to continue to recover and continue to get stronger. And, and here I am and I'm fine. Dave, thank you so much. This is so remarkable. I'd love to have anybody who wants to ask a question and we'll cue that up. And if not, we'll go over to the breakout sessions. You were talking about in the beginning, you know, you wanted to play for the Celtics. I remember Dave Brashears, who you may or may not know, he's climbed Everest many yeah. times. And he said, if you want to be a mountain climber, you need to pick your parents right because, you know, you need to be genetically, he said, if you're six foot four, you're not going to be a good mountain climber. You need to be small, wiry. How was that process of finding your sport, finding your lane when you felt disappointment from these hopes of what you'd wanted to do earlier in life? Well, again, I was determined to be an athlete. You know, what was so interesting is when I finished my run across America, I finished at Fenway. And that's where I always wanted to be. I wanted to play in Fenway, second base, Boston Red Sox. It wasn't meant to be, but I was able to run in Fenway. So I just modified the athleticism and still got done what I wanted to do. So, but the thing I'll leave your guests with is this. I really thought with all this running and silliness that I'd done, that I was invincible, that, you know, there's no kryptonite in my life. Nothing's going to get me down. Obviously, I was wrong. What my whole sort of mission in life right now is, you know, there's a campaign in Massachusetts, a public safety campaign that says, if you see something, say something. And my campaign now is, if you feel something, say something. you got to advocate for yourself. A lot of times we just put that off especially with this pandemic going on and everything else, if you have any sense that something isn't right, you've got to go advocate for yourself and take care of it. And I did. And I got a second chance. And I have seven, eight friends of mine who went out for a run one day, world-class athletes, and never came home. They probably had something. They were in denial, right? And you can't, right? So I, you know, when I had the surgery, I went through five stages, you know, the first one, you know, obviously denial and then anger and then, you know, negotiating, bargaining, and then, you know, depression, and then finally acceptance. So I've accepted my fate. Now what I'm trying to do is help save lives as a result. And I've gotten more cards and letters and emails from people all across America saying, hey, I heard about what happened to you. 
And if it can happen to you, it can happen to me. I went, I got checked. I walked out with three stents. You saved my life. I said, I, I didn't save your life. You saved your own life. But I get it. So take care of yourself. One of the questions somebody wants to ask is, you know, how do you find your inspiration versus motivation? My inspiration actually comes from people like you. One such instance was I got a phone call once from this woman, Katie. She called me up. She says, hi, my name's Katie. Can I come see you at the marathon office? I said, sure. I'll never deny anyone the opportunity to come see me. I'm no better than anyone. We're all in this thing together. Sure, she comes, she comes in. She's in a wheelchair. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So she goes in the conference room. I look across the conference table, and Katie is 36 inches tall. And she looked at me, and she says, um, I got a question to ask you. I said, yeah, what's that? She says, can I run the marathon? I said, you want to run the marathon? She said, yeah, I want to run the marathon. I said, hmm, ask me a difficult question. She said, I can? I said, yeah, I can run the marathon. I said, yeah, you can run the marathon. She said, well, I got a caveat. And I said, what's that? She said, my marathon's 26.2 feet. I said, okay, 26.2 feet it is. She trained like the Dickens, right? And in her walker, in her wheelchair, the whole bit, the day of the marathon come, 30,000 people, media from all over the world. She comes out in a wheelchair. She gets out of her wheelchair, gets in a walker. I line her up. I barricaded 26.2 feet off right at the starting line. I yell go. She takes off. It took her about eight minutes to do 26.2 feet. She crosses the finish line. I put a laurel wreath on her head and a medal around her neck. Gave her a big hug. She did it. Her game, her rules. Nine hours later, I'm doing my marathon at night, like I always do. And as I'm running down Boylston Street, I look up and there's one person waiting for me at the finish line. It was little Katie waiting for me. And she put a laurel wreath on my head that she made me and a medal around my neck that she made me. And she looked up at me and she says, ha, I beat you. <laughs> and little Katie um, died like six months later. But again, those are the inspirational stories that turn into motivation. And I was sitting at this very desk a couple of years ago, and I'm looking out the window right out there, and I see a landscaping truck pull up. I'm like, what the heck is this truck doing here? I didn't order anything. And all of a sudden, they pull a tree out of the truck. I'm like, what are they doing? And my phone rings. And I said, hello, is this Dave? Yeah, this is Joan Lynch, little Katie's mother. I said, yeah, she's there a landscaping company in front of your house. I said, yeah, what's it doing here? She says, well, they're going to plant a tree, a little tree in your yard in memory of Katie. And that's your tree. That's your Katie's tree. And we want you to water it and nurture it and watch it grow. Because that's what you meant to our little Katie. And that tree is right out my front yard. Those are the inspirational stories that turn into motivation. That gets to me. That just gets to me. Dave, thank you. Another question was, what was the most difficult marathon you've run? I would say, for me, maybe Antarctica. It was like minus 10 degrees, wind blowing. You know, all you see is snow and ice. But it was the first marathon of seven in a row. So when people say, what's the most memorable one, too, that was it. I never thought I would ever find myself in the bottom of the earth let alone run a marathon there. But I found myself there and I trained really, really hard the year before for that one race. And then of course all the other six ones were in 80, 90 degrees, but Antarctica was probably the most challenging one for me, but the most memorable one too. I was lucky, I was in the tourism business for many years and went to Antarctica and it's one of mm. the most amazing places. Mm. And it, part of it is just the beauty of it, but part of it is in some cases, the simplicity of it is just, you know, icebergs yeah. and penguins. That's about That's it. it. That's it. 
<laughs> no politics, you know, no religion, you know, nothing else is pretty simple. Dave, nope, thank no you pandemic. <laughs> for all of your time and everything you. you do. And we'll see you at the finish line. 